0: Well, good morning, everybody. I was talking to somebody earlier this morning just saying how renewing, encouraging, uh, uplifting, just coming in here every Sunday and singing those words and reading this word and uh, being reminded of uh, this beautiful truth that uh, our Creator did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Man, that is good Good news isn't it? yes, well, we are continuing our uh, way through Luke, and uh, we're in chapter three, and this chapter um, we've broken it up into two pieces, but it it's really one kind of one unit and uh, last week jeff's message was titled "Prepare the way and what he was doing last week was really helping us understand this person this prophet, John the Baptist, and his message, his message of repentance. We we have to understand that preparing the way for the Lord has everything to do with our hearts, our posture, our receptivity to his arrival. Today we're going to go a little bit further as we get into this chapter, and we're going to focus less on John the Baptist and even on ourselves and more on this Messiah that John was anticipating. So my title is a little bit of an expansion upon uh, Jeff's from last week. His was Prepare the Way. This is Make Way for the Messiah. We're actually going to see him arrive on the scene. I want to remind us of the words at the beginning of the chapter we were told that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So God himself came to his prophet and said, it's time for you to do what you were created to do. And here it is, prepare the way of the Lord. You're gonna be a forerunner. You're gonna go ahead of the Messiah and you're gonna help Israel get their house in order, not, not kind of in their own strength and ability. It's going to be just a pure act of submission, of surrender, like we've blown it. We need this one who has finally come. That was the message. In John, we see this amazing movement through this chapter from preparation to introduction, where he literally introduces the Messiah, and then deference, where he he just begins to fade back into the backdrop so that Jesus Christ can have all of the spotlight. Now, John's ministry was so pronounced that uh, the people who heard him and who heard of him, they they felt this incredible anticipation. Look at verse 15. This is in chapter 3. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now think about that for a minute. This is this prophet. As Jeff described last week, he's kind of a wild guy. He he doesn't fit into any neat little categories of, of religion. He's out in the desert. But there's something about him that everybody notices and he is so unique he is so direct there is so much authority in his message they begin to wonder maybe he's the guy now i want you to put yourself in john's shoes wouldn't that be an amazing moment of temptation you're the forerunner you're the guy who's telling them about the coming messiah but everybody thinks you might be the guy. Wouldn't that be easy just to go, you know what, I don't know how long of a run I could get out of this, but feels pretty good. I could just set up my own little kingdom here. These people would believe it. They're already thinking it. He could set up his own ministry, his own empire, his own kingdom But here's three qualities about John that kept him from ever going down that road. First of all, he was an extraordinary man. Just by all accounts, you look at this guy's life, and in every way, he wasn't perfect. But he walked the walk, talked the talk, lived the life, completely abandoned himself to his God and his calling. Secondly, he was saturated with humility. As bold and direct as he was with everybody, he understood who he was and who he wasn't. And he understood his message and, de- and delivered it clearly, which leads me to the third thing about him. He was utterly devoted to speaking the truth. We're going to see that today very, very vividly. So out of his spirit-formed character, here's how he responds to what he knows the crowds are wondering. They're going, is this the Christ? Here's what John says. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Pretty direct, pretty clear, not leaving any questions in anybody's minds. I would summarize what John is trying to say here in uh, point one of your outline. The Messiah is superior in every way to the very best among us. See, John understood these crowds were impressed with him. But he's saying, listen, guys, I don't even begin to approach the one who is coming. He is so much bigger, so much better. There is so much more about him that I will never possess. You you need to forget about me. He's the one that you need to prepare for. He underscores the vast difference between he and the Messiah. He talks about his baptism, that being of water, which was merely symbolic. It was an external work. It was a, a representation of their posture of repentance, their desire to be realigned with their God. That was the baptism of John. He was very clear about that. But the one who was coming was going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. That's an interior work, not an exterior work. That's a transformation in the most important way. That's a work that John and water could never do. The first evidence of this baptism is at Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter two. Remember when the Holy Spirit comes down and and then you see like fires resting on all of the disciples? It's this amazing moment where the Holy Spirit breaks into time and space and begins to transform Christ followers, believers, people of faith into what they were intended to be. But it's interesting. In that moment, there's two reactions. One of those reactions is amazement. It says many of the crowds were amazed and perplexed As they got some explanation from Peter, they moved to a place of, well, what what do we need to do? We believe. You got us, man. And that's when Peter says, you got to place your faith in him. But it also says there were some, this is hard to imagine, but there were some who mocked those early disciples who were speaking in the languages of the people there, though they didn't know those languages. That was evidence of the Spirit's presence. Wheat and chaff, the Holy Spirit and fire, it refines some and it repels others. And that's a very powerful baptism. And that's the kind of thing that the Messiah does that no other person could do. The coming Messiah was so much more powerful than John. It says he felt unworthy to untie the straps of the Savior's sandals. Um, Disciples would often serve their masters, their rabbis, in in a variety of ways. But a student would never, ever untie the sandals of their rabbi or their master because it was beneath them. That was the job of the very lowest servant. And and think about it. You're walking around in the dirt and the mud and the dung all day, and somebody's got to take off your shoes. And so the student, they don't do that. The lowest servant. And John is saying, You guys are wondering whether I might be the Christ? Let me tell you something. I'm actually below the one who unties everybody's sandals. That's how far apart me and the Messiah are from one another. You need to prepare for him. He is far superior to me or anyone else. John the Baptist prepares the way and then he gets out of the way. As a forerunner, ought to. There's another scene in John 3. Let me read this to you where there continues to be a little bit of dissension between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, which indicates that in that culture, they're still scratching their heads, going, Who are these guys and what's going on here? So it says a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. They think John ought to be kind of upset about that. You're, you're losing your audience, they're going to another team. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, here's the deal. That is what John should have done. That's the right thing. He said the right thing. But that is one of the foundational principles of the Christian life. For you and for me, if, if Jesus, if the Messiah is superior to the greatest among us, then he must increase and we must decrease. And if that isn't a pattern of our lives, then that's a great place to invite the Holy Spirit to do some work. That's how God wants to transform us to look more and more like our Savior. Um, so John is saturated with humility. He's also utterly devoted to speaking the truth. You remember last week, Jeff mentioned a few of his uh, preaching comments, which surprisingly drew a crowd. You brood of vipers, very winsome. Um, Don't tell me you're related to Abraham. Like These are Jews, man. That's like one of the most important things about them. He's like, that ain't gonna do it. The ax is laid at the root of trees, not bearing fruit, which begs the question, got any fruit on your tree? Man. But this isn't malicious. This isn't condescending. It's not inflammatory to get a reaction or an altar call of some kind. John is so convinced that the wrath of God is coming. He is pleading with these people. Repent. He's coming. And when he's done, you won't get another chance. He is bleeding for these people. Because he understands that judgment is serious business. Pastor Alistair Begg says this. God's judgment is absolutely fearful, absolutely fair, and absolutely final. That's what drove John to speak the truth in love. Remember, he is a voice crying in the wilderness, pleading, urging people to respond to the gospel. And it turns out he doesn't just talk to crowds, he goes right after public officials. Look in verse 18. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now, this might not sound like good news, but it's sort of like wouldn't you want to know that you're in danger so that you can do what needs to be done to get out of it? So, that's good news. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. It's one thing to preach to the choir, so to speak. It's another thing to poke the bear. Now, here's what happened. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch, he's the son of Herod the Great. He's put in leadership. Uh, He's a ruler in Galilee, and he has a wife. She's unnamed. We don't have her name anywhere, but then he has a brother, Philip, who is married to a gal named Herodias. Well, Herod and Herodias hook up. And they decide they're gonna can both of their spouses and get married. So that's what they do. It also just so happens that Herodias is Herod's niece. So you can see we've got a pretty dysfunctional family going on here. And so John speaks into that. And once again, it's not malicious. I I don't think he's condescending. He's saying, listen, man, this isn't how God designed a family to work and you're a ruler, you're a leader, you're, you're in front of everyone. You gotta get this right. And it, it obviously was embarrassing to Herod. And so he decided to put John in prison. That's a simple way, just get him out of the public eye. Here's the big idea. John wasn't concerned with what people thought of him or the consequences he might face. He had his assignment from God. Remember, he's humble. He he doesn't think too highly of himself or too little. He's just doing what God called him to do, and he cared deeply about the people he was going to and knew that some of them would respond poorly. I don't know if he expected this or not, but That's how it went down. And there's a sobering reality here that I'm not sure we in the United States really get, but it's certainly something to think about. Following Christ and fulfilling his assignment doesn't exempt us from hardship. The prosperity gospel tells you that if you'll just do everything that God tells you to do, your life's gonna be sweet. You're going to have all the money that you need and all the comfort that you want. You'll have fun and laughter and joy and all that. Listen, this guy is the guy. Jesus is going to say, there's no one on earth greater than John, born of women. So you don't get any more aligned with God than this guy. And he gets thrown in prison, and two, two years later, he gets his head chopped off. So the prosperity gospel, that is a joke. And I wonder sometimes if we don't get persecuted because we don't speak up like John did. But there's things to speak up about. I don't want to get off track. I'm telling you. John 15, here's what Jesus said about following him. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Another great principle of life. If you and I are going after some kind of life that we don't see in Christ, man, we're chasing after the wrong thing. So here's how our master's ministry began, okay? Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I got to be honest, so the, the baptism of Jesus is in all four gospels and this is the most underwhelming description of the baptism I think of all four. There's no fanfare. There's no pomp and circumstance. This is the Messiah showing up on the scene. And and Luke, he's like, people were baptized. Jesus was baptized. He was praying and the heavens opened up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It just all kind of seems a little dull to me. For this moment, like what's happening, this is the beginning, this is the entrance of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine John the Baptist down in the river. You know, there's a crowd of people, he's preaching it, he's doing his thing, calling for repentance. So, you know, a little group of people kind of gather on the shore and they start lining up and they come in one by one. He dunks them. Next guy comes in. All right. And Jesus just sort of casually finds his way into line. Think about that. The creator of the universe is standing in line to be baptized for repentance that he doesn't need. Doesn't say a thing. Doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not justifying. He doesn't look over to the next guy and go, I'm I'm here for a friend. (laughs) Or at least somebody's gonna be a friend someday. He just stands in line. We got we to ask the question, why? Why is he there? Why is he being baptized? What is he doing? Why would he start his ministry there? Point two in your outline, the Messiah stood in line to be our substitute. Banner verse over the life of Christ. God made him who knew no sin, the one who didn't need to stand in line. God made him to become our sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I'll tell you what Jesus was doing. He was making it real clear to everybody there and everybody who would read about it, including us today. I don't belong here, but I'm here by choice for you. And this is how I identify with you and understand he left heaven, the glory of heaven. He's standing in the mud without sin and says, I'll be baptized though I don't need it so that I can identify with you as sinners. And what a contrast to the religious people of the day who distanced themselves from the rabble of the world. Jesus didn't come in some kind of lofty way, he got right down in it. And that's what we're going to see through the rest of this gospel, by the way. We're just going to see Jesus getting right down in it over and over again. People are going to think, You don't belong here. He's going, Yeah, you're right but I'm here, and I'm here for you. His humiliation and exaltation didn't wait to the cross. It actually began right here. Imagine how humbling the creator of the universe standing quietly in his broken creation as if he were like it with no explanation, he just stands there. He gets baptized and then exaltation, the heavens open. The spirit descends and the father speaks. The spirit, it's called a theophany. It's really God taking on some kind of physical form. The, the word dove there, that isn't really a description so much of shape as it is of movement. It's just saying this is how it looked when the spirit was coming down upon Jesus. It looked like a dove kind of landing. But that sign was the sign to John the Baptist that this was the Messiah. In John 1:33, John explains, He who sent me, remember the word of the God, the Word of God came to John of Zechariah. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's why the day after. In, John's, in the Gospel of John's description, which doesn't actually describe the baptism itself, it says Jesus was approaching and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I know it because I saw the Spirit descend. He's your guy. And then the Father speaks. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I like to think that Jesus in his humanity was encouraged by those words. Like any son would. But it wasn't just for Jesus. I want to make sure everybody understood. This is my boy. He's doing exactly what he came to do. Perfectly. That that thing of pleasure, that's really not so much like Jesus performed well and therefore I'm proud of him. It's like this is my boy. I've always been and always will be proud of him. (laughs) He pleases me beyond what words can express. I love him with everything that I have. Perfect love of a father and son. Eternal love, infinite love, limitless. That's what the Father is expressing here. Complete satisfaction and delight in the Messiah. Now, if that weren't enough, remember, we're trying to get the identity of Christ. Like, who was he? Who is he? And so we have John's testimony, we have this baptism, and then we have a a genealogy, a list of names, which were meant to confirm that this is the promised son of the living God. Point three in your outline, the Messiah is the seed promised to silence our adversary and accuser. Genealogies then and now sort of provide credentials, if if you will. Um, if I have some kind of claim, and particularly for Israel, it would have been you know to land, perhaps, or maybe some kind of religious authority or perhaps some other kind of authority, but you would point to your genealogy. You would say, I'm related to so-and-so, and that, therefore, gives me the right to whatever it is I'm claiming. So Luke understands this, and he, and then also in the Gospel of Matthew, we have another genealogy, but both of those are meant to say that Jesus isn't just this um, kind of isolated figure who dropped in from heaven, but he's actually been a part of the story all along. Now, two genealogies Matthew and Luke. Matthew, that gospel is written to Jews. And its focus is really more on Jesus' legal rights to the throne of David. So it's more of a royal perspective. It's a perspective of Israel. It's really saying Jesus is the savior of Israel. But in Luke, he is writing to Gentiles. And so what he's trying to communicate is Jesus isn't just the savior of Israel, he's the savior of the world. He's going to go to every tribe and tongue and nation. He's everybody's savior. Anyone can come. And the way we see him doing it differently than Matthew is Matthew starts with Abraham, the father of Israel. That makes sense. That's what the Jews would have been concerned about. But in this genealogy, he starts with Adam. He actually does it in reverse order, but that's where he's gonna end up, is with Adam. Now, let me just say this. I'm so excited about this. You've been hearing about the gospel project in the borough and in FSM. Well, if you were to go back to the fourth and fifth grade room back here in the corner, there is this huge poster, gigantic wall size, that shows both of these genealogies in there. So even our kids are getting to see the story through people. See, God didn't just, it's not just this little transaction thing. He didn't just write a bunch of rules and laws and all that kind of stuff, but he engaged humanity through people, through promises, through covenants. And that story, it all fits together. And Jesus is the thread going all the way through. So that's, that's what I think Luke is trying to show us here. I'm going to highlight just a few names that are in this list, many of, many of the names you won't even recognize, and that's fine. I'm not even going to try and pronounce them. Jeff said he'd be glad to. <laughs> catch, catch him after the worship gathering. He loves pronouncing Old Testament names. Son of David. Son of Abraham son of Noah, son of Adam, son of God. It's interesting that um, Luke actually uh, brackets his genealogy with two sons of God. The first one isn't obvious because it it says uh, Jesus, the supposed son of Joseph. So obviously that's what everybody would have thought is, yeah, Joseph is... Jesus' dad, but we know that he is the son of God. So his genealogy begins with the second Adam, the second son of God, and ends with the first son of God, Adam, the one who was made by him. Luke is verifying that Jesus was qualified to serve as a superior substitute for every people on earth, that beginning with Adam all the way through, he was a sufficient substitute. One other name you might just uh, take note of in there is Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. If you haven't read Ruth or studied that, man, what a beautiful picture. And that really, that's what's interesting here is for, for uh, a Jew and you claim Abraham is your father, Jesus is Jewish, he can be your kinsman redeemer. You feel very related to him. But to all the Gentiles, they might have wondered, and Jews even made a point to say, hey, you're not one of us. We might let you in. We'll have to have a conference about it. But we're related, you're not. And what Luke is saying is, check that out, man. You are related. Because Jesus doesn't just go back to Abraham. Jesus goes back to Adam and a promise made in the garden. Genesis 3.15. God said to the serpent, through the seed of this woman, and then that would be understood, and this man, their union is going to come a seed that one day is going to take you out. That was the beginning, that was the first promise. God preserved a people through the family of Noah. God established Israel in the people of Abraham and said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then with David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever there would be a king who would sit on the throne forever jesus is in view all the way along here and so the the readers of this gospel perhaps would would have kind of some surprise they'd be like oh I, i'm related to him not just not just jews not just those religious guys down in the middle of town. He's my kinsman redeemer. He is the seed. And I I love going back to Genesis 3.15 because it's very, very specific. That seed would silence the enemy. And I think that's where I wanna end this morning. We're talking about making way for the Messiah. And this Messiah is the one, the only one, who can silence your adversary, your accuser. And I've lived enough life, and I imagine you have as well, that it's real easy to think of all the reasons why God ought to reject us, to push us away, to dismiss us, We just don't quite measure up. We're not good enough. And I just, I I felt like today we need to speak to that head on and just say, here's the deal. You will never measure up, ever. But you have a Messiah who is superior to the greatest among us. And secondly, you know, you and I needed to stand in line. (laughs) We needed to be baptized for repentance if we were with Israel. We needed to place our faith in Christ. We needed to be saved. He didn't, but he stood in line for you and for me. And he is the seed that silences that accuser that stands before God and explains all the reasons why you and I don't ever belong there. You let that sink in. Let that fuel a life of faith. Not in yourself, but in the one who left heaven on our behalf. That's our so what. I want you to think about those three statements. Look at them on your outline. He is superior, He is our substitute he is the promised seed to silence your adversary and accuser. How might you respond to that today? Ask the Lord.